be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, once again, for those of you who don't know, I am Pastor Nathan. I'm our student pastor here at First Baptist Watauga, and I've been preaching while our senior pastor, Dennis, is uh, on vacation. Um, now, actually, I was not supposed to preach this morning. Our young adult intern, who many of you were looking forward to hearing uh, preach for the first time in here, uh, Dylan, was supposed to be, in fact, he, he was supposed to have this wonderful passage about the cows of Bashan, uh, but he pulled a fast one on me, and he, he got sick earlier this week, and he is still uh, recovering, and so unfortunately, he's not with us. But if you're watching on the live stream, Dylan, you win this one. Uh, <laughs> we'll get him up here, y'all. <laughs> uh, now, so I, I want to start this morning uh, by sharing a story with you from a, a time in high school. And uh, I, the high school I went to, uh, for, for most of my time there, we had uh, these period schedules, right? So we had eight or nine period uh, scheduled days, right? So you had first period, second period, so on. And our lunches were also in that framework. So we might have third lunch, fourth lunch, fifth lunch, or sixth lunch. Well, there was one year in particular, it seems, where almost all of my, my friend group, if you will, was in the same lunch together. Now, that was a good year. We all had kind of the same uh, lunch, with, minus a few of us here and there. Uh, we, we kind of all got to sit at the same table. Now, these tables were, were tables of about eight, eight students, and we usually had six or seven of them full and maybe one or two empty seats. One of those empty seats I kind of thought of as the girlfriend chair, okay? That, that's where if, if one of the guys was dating somebody, they could come and sit with us at the table for lunch if they wanted, right? Usually, the guys went and sat at the girls' table, but, but oftentimes, uh, it, that would happen on occasion. Now, I had a friend who was dating a girl for about a week, and you'll hear why in a minute that it only lasted a week. Uh, he brought her with, with him to, to the table that day, and we're like, oh, hi, you know, what's your name? How do you know this crazy guy? You know, and, and we're having lunch with her, and she begins eating, and as best as my memory recalls, it seems that she was enjoying her meal. You ever have the, you know the difference, right, between eating a meal and enjoying a meal, right? She was enjoying the meal. So, so from the best of my memory, I think what happened is she was, like, scarfing it down, right? I, maybe it was a pizza day. I don't know. But she was eating really close to the plate. You ever eat down here? You're so excited. You're just... I think she was doing that number, but my friend who was dating her, in joke, he said to her, you're eating like a cow. Some of you realize the mistake already. He said to her, you're eating like a cow. All she heard was cow, right? And so, I, like I said, I don't know that that relationship lasted too much longer. I don't believe we ever saw her at lunch again uh, because we know better. Any comparison whatsoever, and he learned this, he never did that again, uh, you don't make a comparison of your girlfriend or, or your spouse to cows. It's an a very offensive comparison, right? We know better. And yet this week, as we've, we've been joking in staff for months, who is going to have to preach this passage that opens up with this comparison of cows? It's a very exciting uh, passage, certainly. But this is, you know, we're, we're continuing in our series on Amos. We actually have our banners in now, which look really, really cool, about hear the lion roar. And Amos, of course, is a sheep breeder and a farmer from Judah. He goes up and he's prophesying against the nation of Israel. This is part of why we get cow imagery, right? Because he's, he's from that background. He knows this. Um, and, and so last week, we talked about the impending disaster, the emergency of the situation of a people who simply wouldn't listen. They don't believe that the lion, the Lord, the God of Israel has roared. He's ready to kill them because of their sin. And they simply won't believe it. They simply won't hear it because sin often has this effect 
as it did on them. Sin blinds us from danger. Sin makes it very difficult to have a fear for the Lord, as Matthew was talking about during worship. But today, as we're continuing into this next chapter, Amos chapter 4 today, uh, it gets even more vicious uh, and also more precise. And so we're, we're going to see the Lord make a direct accusation to a particular group of Israelites uh, that were only hinted at in the last chapter, but, but are very much targeted in this chapter. And then we'll see God just start listing out some evidence. Uh, so, so although he's speaking through Amos, I'd remind you this morning as we read this passage that, that this is God giving this message to Amos. And Amos is, is simply the, the, the poor messenger who was the first one to have to preach about the cows of Bashan. Um, so read with me, if you will. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's only 13 verses. If you have your Bibles with me, uh, if you have your Bibles, read with me. Chapter 4 in Amos begins like this. Listen to this message, you cows of Bashan, who are on the hill of Samaria, women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring us something to drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, look, the days are coming when you will be taken away with hooks, every last one of you with fish hooks. You will go through breaches in the wall, each woman straight ahead, and you will be driven along toward Harmon. This is the Lord's declaration. Come to Bethel and rebel, rebel even more at Gilgal. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tents every three days. Offer leavened bread as a thank offering and loudly proclaim your free will offerings, for that is what you Israelites love to do. This is the Lord's declaration. I gave you absolutely nothing to eat in all your cities, a shortage of food in all your communities, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I also withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. I sent rain on one city, but no rain on another. One field received rain while a field with no rain withered. Two or three cities staggered to another city to drink water, but were not satisfied, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I struck you with blight and mildew. The locusts devoured your many gardens and vineyards, your fig trees and olive trees, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I sent plagues like those of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I caused the stench of your camp to fill your nostrils, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a burning stick snatched from a fire, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Therefore, Israel, this is what I will do to you, and since I will do that to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He is here, the one who forms the mountains, creates the wind, and reveals his thoughts to man, the one who makes the dawn out of darkness and strides on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name. I hope you're buckled up. Uh, it's, it's a very, very aggressive passage. So let's start with, with that awful verse one, okay? We're going to walk back through this and try to understand it to the best of our abilities. Hopefully, if you were in growth group this morning, you already got a lot of the background information uh, and, and learned some of this. And so I'm going to try not to, to step all over that again. But, and so you'll hear me summarize a few things. So for instance, these, these women that they're referring to, right? The, these women, these, these wives uh, that, are, that are cows of Bashans living in the hills of Samaria. What this is implying, of course, is, is wealth, luxurious living. Uh, if this was written today, it'd probably be something simplified like you fat, lazy cows, right? Not good stuff. Not good stuff to be called. Uh, and so the implication, of course, that these wives are selfish, that they're enjoying this luxurious amount of wealth, and they're commanding their husbands to bring them more to drink. Husbands, have you ever tried this? Asking, like, commanding your wife to bring you something to drink? 
I'm, I'm not even married for two years and I haven't tried this. I'm way too scared to try that, right? And I think if this was reversed in the passage, it, it, it wouldn't be a thing because the women would certainly kill the men and the problem would be solved. But, but the men are just obeying this. <laughs> the men are simply obeying the command to bring them uh, something to drink. And we get this imagery of these women in Israel who are, who are quite, you know, provocatively here, fat, lazy cows, right? Crazy. An interesting contrast here is Proverbs 31. Many, many of you uh, will have heard that before, read it before. If you haven't, it's very popular in, in women's ministries across the globe to look at Proverbs 31 because we see the, the image of a godly wife and we see this image of someone who's hardworking, someone who could never really be even accused of laziness. And so we see this stark contrast is that the women in Israel are, are so well off at this point and they care so little about the, the oppressed and needy that they've come to this place where, where God's calling them fat, lazy cows. Now, I, I do want to pay attention to the husbands here, because one of the first things I, I think of when I read this passage is, why the women? Why is it so harsh on just the women of Israel? And if you, again, if you pay attention to context and understand something about the day and age, right, we see something interesting with the husbands. The husbands care clearly more about pleasing their wives instead of being any kind of, of leader, Remember, in this day and age, the men have all social and political power, all of it. So the command to bring me something to drink is something easily refuted in that day and age. It's often reversed in that day and age, right? It, and they didn't get in trouble as much for that as we would get in trouble for that, right? We know better than that. But, but that's what we see is, is really an upset order of God's design. It's a very twisted, perverted way of looking at marriages in Israel. I, I think that's what we see in this passage is a hint that marriages in Israel at this point are not healthy, right? They're not in right order. And so the men are at the very least enabling their wives to crush and oppress the poor and needy. I wonder how much sin in Israel could have, pre could have been prevented had the men simply stood up and led. It reminds me of Adam and Eve. We often give Eve the credit for the first sin of the world, and if you read the text carefully, you'll notice Adam was with her the whole time. And, and you're waiting in that passage, it seems, when you're reading it, for Adam to say, hold on, Eve, God said we can't. After all, God originally gave the command to Adam directly. We assume Eve knows the command because she says so, right? And Adam had communicated that to her. But Adam's kind of first in line here to say, hold on, what are we doing? And he fails to do that. So here in Israel, we see that sin repeated again, is that the men are at the very least enabling the women. Now also notice they're asking, bring us more wine. Now my assumption here is that that us is actually probably referring to the husbands as well. I think they're probably lounging around together. After all, which of you husbands, if you're kind of wanting to have a lazy day and your wife's like, let's sit down, stay home, have a drink with me, right? We're men. We're going to stay with them and lay down right next to them and have drinks. And so these men are not only enabling the women, I would suggest that they're probably participating. They're, they're not only allowing the, the crushing of the, the poor and, and, and needy, but they're also probably participating alongside and so what we see right off the bat in verse 1 is that both husbands and wives in Israel cared more about pleasuring themselves and each other than they did about caring for other people, right? Remember that they were, they were living this luxurious, wealthy life at, at the expense of the poor, often crushing them in the process, and also at the neglect. They simply didn't keep them in mind at all. They didn't care. 
Okay, and I think the sin we see of the wives, where they're they're targeted in this passage, I think the assumption, the implication is, of course, that the men are at fault here as well. So if you were hoping in this passage today that we'd we'd skirt out of trouble, men, I'm sorry, we didn't. Um, it it's it's clear when you look at the rest of the book of Amos that although they were the women were targeted in this chapter, the men certainly didn't escape the disaster either. The failure is on both their parts because they did not care about others. Now, in verses 4 through 5, we see this very interesting uh, dynamic with their worship, okay? We see basically sarcasm, almost. Like, like, come, bring your worships, rebel even more. If you can imagine Matthew opening up worship one day, let's rebel together, everyone. We'd fire him on the spot, you know? Like, get out of here. Get off the stage. We know better. But this is what we see in the passages is come, come to the worship center, right? Come, come to the temple, bring your sacrifices, rebel, rebel even more. The, the implication, of course, being that they're simply adding to their transgressions when they bring their sacrifices. They're adding to their sins. So they were using worship and they were perverting it. They were tricking themselves into this level of comfort. God's okay with what I'm doing because I'm still going to the temple to worship. Because I'm doing this part of the law correctly, which, it, again, if you looked in your growth groups this morning, correctly is kind of a, a hard word to say in this passage when their worship is at stake, right? And, and so we see because of that, because we're coming to worship, I can be comfortable with everything else I'm doing. I don't have to care about others. They also use this to simply abuse others. Notice that, that they proclaim loudly about their free will offerings. Okay, free will offering is someone, something you brought freely. That's in addition to anything required. And that's the stuff that they're proclaiming about, right? I, I, you know, it, it'd be like you go to church like everyone else, but you brag about like your leadership position somewhere in the church. Like I am, I always donate X amount to the back to school rally. Every year I do it, you know, like that's, that's kind of what we see here. The free will offerings that they're bringing, those are the ones that they're making a big deal about. Those are the ones that are, they're preaching loudly. And the text said that they love to do this. They love to proclaim their sacrifices. And this is, this is the part I really want to zero in on for a minute, is that there's an issue here with their sacrifices and with their wanting to proclaim the sacrifices. And the problem is that worship for them had led to a love for worship, a love for themselves. Worship had become all about them. But you see, worship should lead to a love for God, not a love for worship. There was a time as a, as a kid when we had gotten a, a Christmas gift for a family member. I believe it was my aunt. And, and we, we go over to my aunt's house, and, and we've got all the family gathered together. Now, of course, when I say that we had gotten a gift, what I mean is my parents had gotten a gift, wrapped it up. I had no idea what it was. And on the card, I signed my name, Nathan. Right? So it's from me as well. You ever do that? Anyone in here ever get gifts for people, but you have your kids sign the gifts? You know, it's... It's common practice, right? Well, that, that was the deal. And so I got the task that particular Christmas. They handed me the wrapped gift, which looked beautiful. I wondered what was inside it. I had no idea. Probably adult stuff that I wouldn't care about. A book or a movie, not toys, you know? And so they handed me this present, and they said, go give that to Aunt Lolly. I said, okay. And I took this over to her. No sooner had she taken it from me had I begun to rip into the packaging to open it up and see what was inside. This is not... Hopefully not your custom at Christmas. That was, I was confused. I didn't understand gift giving to a person. All I really understood at the time was that only good things lie behind wrapped packages at Christmas time. Can you really fault me? That's, That's what I thought was going on. I didn't understand yet because I had fallen in love with the gifts 
and not the people that we were giving the gifts to. In the same way, we sometimes fall in love with worship. We can fall in love with serving in the church, maybe the singing of songs or the serving in the, the back-to-school rally or sharing Christmas, all because it gives us these warm, fuzzy feelings that we're important, right? We mattered. We made someone else's life better. But if we fail to love God as much, we've missed the whole point. So we have to remember that worship is a means for the glorification of God. It's a means for us to grow in a loving relationship with God. Worship is not about us. Worship should never lead to a love for worship itself. It should always lead to a love for God. In the next several passages, hopefully you notice as we were reading through this passage how many times we saw this is the Lord's declaration, right? Understand the personal tone that, that Amos is trying to communicate of the God of Israel. And you'll see that more here. In verses 6 or 11, we see the Lord punish them over and over again in attempts to draw them into repentance, okay? That's, that's what he says, you, you did not return to me. You did not, re- I did this, I did this, you did not return to me. In fact, five times, five little sections here, we see God did something to cause that repentance. If, if you remember from your Old Testament, oftentimes, this is actually a pattern that God was trying to follow. It's a pattern that Israel was accustomed to. You see, they would decide, we're going to follow God. Now we're going to sin. And so God's like, all right, well, I'm going to at least remove my protection from you. I'm going to allow enemies to come in. God will sometimes just deal with them directly. I'm going to cause these bad things to happen to you so that you'll repent, right? So we would see suffering, and then we'd see repentance at work. They would say, oh, this is terrible. They'd cry out for help. And God would come and rescue them and raise up a leader. This is what we see in that cycle in the book of Judges, right? And then they'd repent, and we'd start the whole thing all over again. Except here, in this passage, we're stuck on the suffering part. God's like, I've sent this and this and this. You should get it. You should know. You should repent. But they're not doing it. See, God's basically begging them to repent. And here's the, here's the really interesting thing about this passage to me. Maybe you don't care as much, but I think you should. Deuteronomy warned about all of this, all of it. See, in chapters 15 and 24 of Deuteronomy, we see that Israelites had law for how to treat the poor and needy. And if you look at what the Israelites are accused of doing, they weren't caring for the poor and needy. They were breaking those laws. In Deuteronomy 27 and 28, we begin to see God give blessings. This is forever ago. When he's originally giving the law, he's saying, if you'll obey me, this is what I'll do. If you disobey me, this is what I'll do, right? So we see in Deuteronomy 28, curses listed out. When you disobey me, this is what I'm going to do. Verse 17 in Deuteronomy 28 says, your basket and netting bowl will be cursed. There'll be no food being produced, okay? Verse 18, your land's produce will be cursed. If there's no rain, there's no produce, Verse 22, the Lord will afflict you with wasting disease, fever, inflammation, burning heat, drought, blight, and mildew. Blight and mildew were directly mentioned in this text today in Amos. Verse 38, Deuteronomy 28, you will sow much seed in the field, but harvest little because locusts will devour it. Again, locusts are mentioned in today's passage. Verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. And that is also directly referenced in today's passage. So what you're telling me then And I see all that, is that this whole time that Amos is prophesying to the Israelites, and they're experiencing all of this bad stuff, all they had to do was check what the prophet was saying against the word of God that they already had. And then they would know whether or not what he's saying is true. Yes, it was that simple. They they had the law, they had the Torah, they had this word of God that was predicting all of this. And so 
Amos is coming and prophesying all of this as if it's new stuff, and it's really not. It was all to be expected. They were having a hard time believing him, but they had no reason not to believe him. He was simply regurgitating what God had already said. He was just saying it again because our God's a merciful God is willing to tell us things twice sometimes. <laughs> but they didn't care about what the law said anymore. They didn't care about the word of God and what it had to say anymore. They'd forgotten it. They weren't teaching their kids the word of God anymore. And it is dangerous to forget the word of God. It is dangerous to ignore the word of God. It is dangerous to change the word of God. It is dangerous to forget the word of God. They failed to look for God in his word. He was clearly present and communicating in ways that they should have seen and they would have seen it, and they simply remembered the word of God. Finally, we get into verses 12 and 13 where the Lord threatens to come down. If you'll allow me, I just want to read it again because it's, it's, it's so intense. Verse 12, therefore, Israel, that is what I will do to you. And since I will do that to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He is here. The one who forms the mountains, creates the wind, reveals his thoughts to man. The one who makes the dawn out of darkness and strides on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name. So I read that. I think of like Lion King, like Mufasa, whoo, say it again. You know, like that, that's what I think when I read this passage. It's like shivers. Like that is not something I want to hear God saying to me. You know, that anyone ever get in trouble and their, their mom was like, this happened to me. My mom would, if I got in trouble at home and dad is at work, mom would be like, I'm telling your father when he gets home. And that was, oh no. Because I knew, I, I learned some things, discipline in my house. I learned that mom usually had much more tolerance and patience for me than my dad did. All right? She just is what it is. Dad had a shorter fuse. Well, dad had a really short fuse if I had already burned through mom's fuse. You hear me? So if mom got to a point where she says, I'm telling your father, I'm like, on my knees begging, no, what can I do? Please, anything. You know, this is the level of, of fear that they should have, right? God's like, prepare to meet me. I'm coming. And it, it's actually easier to understand if you understand the context of Exodus 19 and 20, okay? So back when God had led Israel out of Egypt with Moses, right, they show up to Mount Sinai. We see God wants to meet with Moses, so he comes down onto Mount Sinai and thunders and cloud and smoke, all scary-like. The people become afraid. Moses is like, hey, I'm going to set up boundaries on this mountain so that my people, who, he knows his people are stupid, okay? He's like, I don't want them coming anywhere near that mountain. They're going to get themselves killed. The people are like, hey, Moses, whatever God says to you, we'll listen to it from you. Please don't let him speak to us because we know we'll die when we hear it, right? That big, scary, powerful God is now in Amos saying, I'm coming down there. Now, I prepare to meet you. You know, prepare to meet your maker. I'm coming and you're going to die. So we learned from last week that the Lord will deal with his people, and sometimes he'll just do it directly. He'll, he'll do it like that. He'll just come down. So how, how should we respond? That just like last week, as we work through the passage, I point out some things uh, exegetically to you. You learned, hopefully, a lot of exegesis in your growth group this morning. I, I saw uh, what, what Sandra and Jessica had, had learned together and formed for us. So it's, it's, it's all there, right? And so hopefully you have a good understanding now of what Amos meant to the people of Israel. There's always the challenge then of trying to understand why we should care, right? Because we always have a tendency, especially when accusations are thrown at the wealthy, to say, I'm not wealthy. <laughs> Suddenly we have a lot less money than we really do when, when the accusations pointed at the wealthy. But their biggest sin in this passage is this, this injustice. And the problem is really that they're blind to it. Right? Sin's a problem. We know that. 
sin's a problem, and, and sin's always something you need to kind of deal with. Even if you, if you accept Christ as your Savior, you're saved from the eternal consequences of sin, we still have to kind of wrestle with it all throughout our lives. It's a bigger problem if you can't see it. It's a much bigger problem if you can't see it. That was their problem. They're blind to it. They're blind to this injustice, to the way that they're mistreating the poor and needy. It's a mistake to fail to use the blessings of God that he gives you, the gifts and talents he gives you, the wealth he gives you. It's a a mistake to fail to use that for God's kingdom. It's a mistake to, to care about that stuff and not anyone else in the room. But the problem is that we must have hearts of compassion in order to do that. In 2004, a popular uh, kids animated Christmas movie came out titled The Polar Express. I don't know about y'all, that became a Christmas tradition. We ended up watching that one every year. Now, to be fair, my family was into movies. We watched a lot of movies every year, okay? We watched probably 15 to 20 Christmas movies every time we hit the season. This was one of them. Well, when it was in theaters, my cousins went to see it, and my, my cousin named Cambry was real small when she saw this movie, okay? Now, in this movie, if you don't know, and I'm sorry if I'm spoiling this, but you've had, you've had some time, okay? It's 2004. <laughs> and there was, there's a scene early on at the beginning of the movie of this little boy at the stopped train, the Polar Express, and the conductor says, do you want to get on? He's like, oh, I don't know about this. He doesn't get on. And so the train starts taking off, and the boy changes his mind. So he starts running in the snow after this moving train to try to get on, and he trips and he falls into the snow, and my cousin Cambry lost her mind. She she begins screaming and crying and throwing a fit in the theater because she can't believe she's so upset that the little boy's not going to get onto the train. Of course, she calmed down a few minutes later when the train did in fact stop and let the boy back on the train. But that level of compassion, that level of grief, that's what we're missing That's what the Israelites were missing. It's those hearts of compassion we have to have. That'll protect you from committing these levels of sin if you simply have that heart of compassion. And there's good news. If you're in sin this morning, if you know you need to repent and you know you don't have that heart of compassion, I got good news because I know a guy. His name is Jesus. Many of you know him too, right? Jesus is the one who can give us those hearts of compassion. He came, he died and rose again for our sins that we might be saved. And he offers us hearts of compassion. If you'll simply learn to see the world the way Jesus does, where multiple times in the New Testament we see Jesus look upon a group of people or a city and he's moved to compassion. Until we have that level of compassion for those around us, we won't be able to care about other people. We won't be able to, to care about evangelism. You, you want to care about evangelism, start praying for, for God to give you that heart of compassion. Because until you look at someone who's lost and you break down in tears, like Cambry did when that boy couldn't get on the train, you're going to be stuck. There's tons of mercies uh, in these passages in the book of Amos because God hasn't completely destroyed them yet. He has every right to. They have well surpassed his, his tolerance, his patience, and yet he keeps talking about things. Just think of the imagery of a burning stick in a fire. That's what he says, right? Like a burning stick in a fire, I pulled you out, right? I snatched you from the fire. He's saying you can still, even now, just repent and be saved. We too can be snatched from the fire. And so if you don't know Jesus this morning, here in a minute, we're going to give you an opportunity to make that decision. If you are following Jesus this morning, don't make the mistake of thinking that God won't deal with your sin. I know I'm repeating myself from last week, but don't make the mistake of thinking God won't deal with it. And don't let yourself live in continuous sin because what it does is it, it corrupts your heart. 
You won't be able to have a heart of compassion if sin is wasting your heart away. It's not going to let you care about anything but yourself, and it'll ultimately decay your heart. So as Matthew and the worship team come on up, and we sing this last song, you'll have an opportunity to respond like always. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.